As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. I said, my biggest headache is I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't want to pretend to be a therapist. I don't want to pretend to be a counselor. I don't want to pretend to be a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a therapist. I want to be a human being writing helpful tips for other human beings like a friend. That's what I want. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. Most people don't know this about me, but I'm really, really fascinated by human behavior. I realized a long time ago that our world is ruled by relationships. And if you're going to succeed in building relationships, you need to start understanding how people work. And so I've been following today's guest for a very long time. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards, and she's the lead investigator for her company, Science of People. Vanessa shares tangible skills to improve interpersonal communication and leadership, including her insights on how people work. She's developed a science-based framework for understanding different personalities to improve our EQ and help us communicate with colleagues, clients, and customers. The Science of People takes the most interesting research about people, relationships, human behavior, and personal development, and puts it into easy-to-understand, accessible articles and workshops. Millions of people visit the site every month, and more than 30 million people watch Vanessa on YouTube. In 2018, Vanessa released her book, Captivate, 
The Science of Succeeding with People, which has been translated into 15 different languages. And I have to say, Captivate is one of the best books that I've read in years. I highly recommend picking up a copy, and a link is in the show notes. I was actually listening to the audiobook of Captivate on a plane to record a course with LinkedIn Learning when I noticed that she was filming a course the same week. I got really excited. Unfortunately, we didn't cross paths that week, but as luck would have it, we had another overlapping film date in 2019, and we met then. Vanessa is an incredible speaker, and you may have seen her 2017 TED Talk that's been viewed more than 2 million times. But about that TED Talk. My TED Talk, which did so well, Back in the day, 2017, I thought it would be really clever to call it You Are Contagious. Today, in a giant pandemic of coronavirus, my TED Talk is called You Are Contagious. We have a funnel, email funnel, where we send out my TED Talk in a couple of the email funnels, and the subject is You Are Contagious. Oh, no. Man. And it took me like three weeks to figure that out. Oh, my gosh. When people were emailing, and they were like, um... This was a really horrifying email subject to get right now. You really should change it. And the problem is the way that our email funnels are stacked is it went out to like, mm, I don't know, like 12,000 people in one day. So it wasn't even like it trickled out. Awkward. But as a self-proclaimed recovering awkward person herself, Vanessa is used to dealing with the awkward. I love this interview because Vanessa is honest and transparent, just like you just heard. And some of the best stuff is at the very end of this interview. So make sure that you stick around. In this episode, we talk about how she went from being unable to work with others to studying people like she would study for a class. We talk about how she found a way to earn a living online and how she'd recommend you do the same. We talk about all of her challenges and why being willing to pivot has allowed her to build the life that she aspired to. As you're listening to this, I'd love for you to shoot me a message on Twitter or on Instagram at jklaus. Say hello, send me a screenshot, let me know that you're tuning in. And now let's jump in and talk with Vanessa. I couldn't help but start our conversation by asking her, the people scientist, what is her favorite conversation starter? You know, that's like asking someone to pick their favorite child. <laughs> that's a really hard one. I'm obsessed with conversation starters. My favorite though, this is my go-to and it works really well with like old friends and new and people you don't know, which is working on anything exciting recently? Mm, yes, well. What are you doing? How do you have to answer now? That's the, whole, that's the whole point. This podcast is the most exciting thing that I've been working on recently. Um, yes. And by recently, I mean for the last nine months. It's like a baby. It's like a baby. It's like a baby that has finally entered the world. Um, Is I, this episode the baby? Are we here? Are you due? <laughs> I am too. I am it's, overdue. It's I nine months. <laughs> okay. This is the baby. Congratulations, Jay. You've had a baby. Her name is Vanessa Van Edwards. And uh, this is your, your baby episode. No, so I, I find that that question is great because it gets you off of social scripts. I hate social scripts. I'm one of those people who gets bored very easily. And so I have to ask questions that are gonna shake people out of, what do you do? Where are you from? How are you? That question is also safe. Mm -hmm. So I've made mistakes in the past by asking too deep, too fast. As a vulnerability junkie, you know, I love going deep, going fast. 
So we did a study where we uh, did six different conversation starters, everything from what do you do to where are you from? And then are you working on anything exciting recently? There was one question that we asked that people either rated it off the charts, it was their favorite question, or they absolutely hated it, wanted to walk out of the experiment. Can you guess what it was? Oh boy, loved it or absolutely hated it. Introverts hated it, extroverts loved it. That was, in the end, that's what we figured out. Um, do you have any exciting plans coming up? Okay, that's a really good guess because it has to do with socializing. This one surprised me so much because I've asked this question and now I don't ask it anymore. What's your story? I do that all the time. I ask that all the time. No more, Jay. We can't. We can't ask it anymore because what we found was extroverts are thrilled by this question. Their dopamine circuits are off the charts. Introverts are like too much, too deep. I don't know you, dude. And introverts have been found to use less words in the average day. That invites a long answer. And so my favorite question is like just a nudge away from how are you? It's like one sidestep away from what do you do, but still safe. That's so interesting. Um, Way back in the day, I filled out a job application for an internship when I was in college. And they had one question on the application. And the question is, what are you like? And I used that as a question for a while. And I love the response because I'm sure it was the same response as what you saw with what's your story because it's so existential. People yeah. say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a manager at this company. It's like, no, no, no. What are you like? And they're like, what do you mean what am I like? But I think it's a little too intense. Oh my gosh, I'm writing it down because I kind of love it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just tell you about my personality. I kind of love it. <laughs> so when you say social scripting, yes. why did social scripting come to exist? Why do people follow social scripting? I believe if we're going to go really deep, it's a deep social fear of not being liked. I think what happens after observing thousands of social interactions between awkward people, introverts, extroverts, ambiverts, people with social anxiety, we all are afraid that we're going to say something that people are going to be like, that was weird. And then she's weird. And then I don't like her. And then I want to leave this place or I want to stop talking to her. And so that backs its way into what do we feel is acceptable to ask? And so it is acceptable to ask at any networking event, party, barbecue, even a Starbucks, how are you? How's it going? That's acceptable. If you've been introduced to someone and you know their name, it's then acceptable to say, what do you do? That's about where the acceptable ends for a lot of people. And so they go to networking events and they have literally the same conversation over and over again. And they're in a trap. They're in a trap because they feel like, I'm afraid to ask something crazy because I'm afraid I'm not going to be liked. But I know that I'm being boring, which makes me not likable. Acceptable is such an interesting way to put it because who defines what is acceptable? Is it like our parents when we were kids? Is it society? Is it, you know, like, where does that come from? How do we, how do we learn that? When we think about our social interactions, we, a lot of our social engagements were shaped as children. And I was thinking about an interesting story the other day where I realized that so much of our experience shapes who we are. So for example, if you were in sixth grade and you went to your first school dance, remember this in your body. Do you remember, Jay, do you remember your first school dance? Do you remember? I hated it. I I was the guy against the wall. Okay. Remember even the days leading up to the school dance? Remember how it felt like the school was like electric? 
You know, like that day at school, like everyone was like thinking about it and talking about it. People looked a little bit nicer. People went to the bathroom more often. I remember specifically the teacher had to tell people to stop going to the bathroom that day. I don't know if it was nervous peeing. I don't know what was happening. And then I remember the visceral experience. I remember the smell of walking into my school gym, of giving them my little raffle ticket, walking in, hearing that thump, 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 thump. I think it was like in sync or something back in the day. Um, I'm aging myself, but like that, that's, I remember it. I get the same experience. And this struck me a couple weeks ago when I walked into a friend's birthday party at a nightclub and it smelled the same and it felt the same and it sounded the same. And I was right back to sixth grade Vanessa. Wait a minute. This nightclub smelled like Axe body spray. It did. It did. <laughs> this is an awesome testament to why different conversation starters are so powerful because these weren't even any of the questions I had at the beginning of my list. And we Yay! just started going deep on it because it, it got me in a different path. But, you know, conversation starters is one, one small element of all of the awesome work that you put out. And before we dive deep on your story, I'd love to hit some more of the improvements that someone can make to better connect with people around them besides conversation starters. Yeah. Um, well, conversation starters is a big one. Um, but the, so there's, when I think about my business, I think about it in terms of buckets. So there's conversation, which is a big bucket. That's the day-to-day interactions. The other piece of it is someone's personality. And that's because your personality shapes your conversation. So we've been actually talking about this all the way already, which was introversion, extroversion, ambiversion. So if you think about it in terms of layers, our conversation starters that we choose, how we answer, how we talk is shaped by our personality. And I'm obsessed with personality because so much of it is solvable. Now, I'm a recovering awkward person, so um, I need formulas for interacting with people. People's skills do not come naturally to me. I have to really think in terms of black and white, which questions do I ask? How do I answer? What's a facial expression? And so when I discovered this science personality, it gave me a lot of relief because it made people not this imaginary black box, but actually a solvable formula in a certain sense. So every single person uh, has five different personality traits. And by the way, if you've heard of Enneagram or DISC or Myers-Briggs, those are all fun, but they're actually not backed up in science. They haven't been replicable, which means they're not reliable. This science is actually replicable. It's used by academic universities. It's able to be used across genders and races and socioeconomic statuses. So everyone has these five traits and you either fall high, medium, or low on these traits. So they are, the fancy five, are known as ocean. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. If you really wanna get better at interacting with people, I highly recommend learning about these five traits figuring out where you fall on the scale, and then solving the people in your life. So I actually have a little matrix, a little circle cipher for every single person in my life where I have where they rate on the personality traits. This affects how I email them, how I call them, what I invite them to, how I interact with them, how I tell them I love them, how I ask for things from them. And so it's, it's sort of like the best thing that you can do for figuring out how you can approach and have great conversations with people. I love that. Um, let me see if I got that. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. There you go. After the break, Vanessa and I dive deeper into how she recovered from being an awkward person. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. 
Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. Welcome back. Vanessa had just shared with us her preferred science-backed framework for categorizing people's personality traits. As an acronym, they are OCEAN, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And we may rank high, medium, or low for all of those traits. And she had also told us that she was a recovering awkward person. So I wanted to hear more about what she meant by that and how other people can recover from awkwardness too. Yeah, well, I think there's awkward people, there's recovering awkward people, there's recovered awkward people, and there's people who were never awkward in the first place. So people who were never awkward in the first place, those are the people that are the the life of the party, the super charismatic, uh, naturally comfortable, confident people. I think every awkward person is going through stages of recovery, and that's because people who identify as awkward, and if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that's me, it's because we have self-doubt, we have, we struggle with confidence. Some days we feel super confident, other days we doubt ourselves, and that is what fuels our awkwardness. And so it can flare up around a VIP, it could flare up around our boss, it could flare up in a client pitch. And so the reason why I say I'm a recovering awkward person is because most days, these days, I'm okay, I'm doing good. 
But occasionally, I have a moment where I'm like, <gasps> and that's my awkward day, and that's where I'm still in recovery. <laughs> I want to double-click on this self-doubt idea because I love frameworks. I love being able to think through something like Ocean to figure out, okay, how do I best communicate with somebody? Then the self-doubt will kick in and say, yeah, but isn't that a little too contrived? Or I might even throw like the word manipulative on there because that's my self-doubt saying, should I do this this way or should I just be the way that I am? How do you think about that? So I would say it's not manipulative, it's not contrived, it's purposeful. And this is really important. So what happens when you don't have these kinds of frameworks for an awkward person is you strive for perfect. You strive for impressive. And so you think, okay, I want to be myself, but I have to be the best version of me. I have to be the perfect version of me. I have to tell witty stories and have great questions and have great answers and always be smiling and have super confident body language all the time. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Perfect is impossible. And what we have seen over and over again is when you are being impressive, people don't typically relate to it. So even if that's you, it's not the way that people normally relate frameworks, especially understanding how you are naturally optimizing your strengths. So saying, okay, I am not a natural extrovert. I'm an ambivert. So I'm in the middle of the extroversion scale. I don't want to fake it till I make it. That's one of my least favorite social phrases because that is inauthentic. I think that is manipulative on yourself, but I can say, okay, Here's a framework for ambiverts. Here are my triggers that trigger me into awkwardness. Here are my confidence builders. I'm gonna take two confidence builders and avoid two triggers and I've got an okay day. That makes my interactions purposeful. I have a purpose. I'm trying to solve someone's matrix. Going to a conversation saying, my goal is to solve all five of their personality traits is authentic because you're trying to really get to know them. It adds a purpose to your questions which helps take down awkwardness and anxiety because you know where you're going. And then lastly, they feel an intense kind of attention that's not trying to be impressive. So I'm just trying to get away from, I'm gonna try to impress them and change it to, I'm going to deeply and purposefully get to know them. When did you start thinking about this? Whether it's when you got into human behavior itself or when did you start saying, I don't like that I have these awkward tendencies around people and I want to find a way out? There was a couple years where I felt like I would walk into rooms and I felt like everyone had gotten a rule book that I had just missed. Like I remember in, in college, uh, my last two years of high school and my first two years of college, feeling like everyone just knew something that I didn't. And that was when I realized there was a gap. And then my junior year of college, I had sort of come to an acceptance with it. I was like, that's just me. I'm never going to be liked. I'm never going to be popular. I'm not going to have very deep friends. That's just me. Like, people don't like me. Like, literally, I just accepted that about myself. And I was like, I'm going to have to work around it. I'm going to have to find jobs where I work alone. I literally was on that career track in college. And um, I had a tipping point where I had a professor, uh, Professor Mullis from Emory University, shout out. Um, and uh, I had to write a paper, and it was a group paper where you had to work together, and then you each kind of wrote pages, and then you passed it back and forth to each other. And this is like my worst nightmare, right? Like, I was like, no one's going to want to work with me. Everyone hates me, right? So I went to him, and I was like, okay, I will write double the amount of pages if I can do this project myself. So I will write 20 pages by myself instead of two pages with five other people. Wow. And he looked at me, and he was like, Vanessa... This is not about the writing skills. This is about the people skills. 
He's like, the point of this project is that I want you to work with other people. And I remember just like terror and he saw it on my face and he's like, what's the problem here? And I kind of gave him a little bit of my history. And he said, listen, you have a very analytical brain. Why don't you study for people like you study for chemistry? I was like, what? And he's like, why don't you just make a flashcard for each person in your group, write down their likes and dislikes, write down questions you would ask of them. Facebook wasn't around back in the day. He was like, but I want you to think of all the things you know about them and then use that flashcard just like you're studying for a quiz. That was the first time anyone had ever taught me that I could maybe operate in a more black and white way. And that was okay. I love that. And I love those moments of clarity or even just like huge change that somebody, you know, he probably hasn't thought about that moment for years, maybe ever. And it's such a huge impact on you that now has this downstream effect on all the people who've read your books. It's just amazing. So you said you were kind of on a track to be working alone. What was the career track that you thought you were on in college? And when did that change? Yeah, so I, um, in college, thought I was going to go into international studies. Um, I'm very good at learning languages, hence flashcards, memorization. (laughs) And so um, at the time, I spoke English, Spanish, French, and Mandarin. And now I'm barely functioning in in English and Spanish, maybe a little bit of Mandarin still. And so I thought I was going to either be a translator, like a written translator, or go into international studies of some kind. And I was on that track until, interestingly, my senior year, I hadn't applied for jobs yet. And my mom sent me to a financial seminar. So my mom was a lawyer. And she said to me, I'm so grateful to my mom for this. I tell my mom this all the time, by the way. My mom is a lawyer and she used to love being a lawyer. And then she became a mom and she realized that lawyers are paid for their time. And she is constantly chained to her office. And she said to me, if you want to be a mom, if you want to have financial freedom, you have to not work for your hours. Do not have a job where you're working for your hours. And she said, I'm going to send you to a financial seminar that will teach you about this. And so she sent me to a weekend financial seminar in Los Angeles. And it was three days. So it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I remember it extremely well. And all they taught you about was passive income. That was the entire weekend was passive income businesses. I had never heard those two words before, but they explained why you do passive income, how you do passive income. And so I thought, you know what? I want that. I want that. At the time I was like, also, I can work by myself. I can do something online. And so I started to dabble in the passive income business. And this was in 2006. So in 2007, I started a YouTube channel, which by the way, no one even knew what YouTube was, but I figured video, right? Video was an online business. So I started a YouTube channel in 2007. I joined Twitter in 2007. These were like brand new. No one knew what they were back in the day. And um, at that time, I was deep into the communication research from that professor's conversation. I had started taking psychology classes at Emory. I didn't have time to major in it, although I would have if I could go back. I was making communication flashcards. I was writing conversation starters. At that point, I discovered facial expressions and nonverbal and body language. And so I started to write about it for parents and teenagers. How'd you choose that? So in the seminar, they said, pick a niche. Pick a niche, right? Like that's what every business book says. Pick a niche, pick a niche. At the time I was, I'm gosh, I'm gonna age myself, uh, 20. And um, I figured, okay, I just left my teen years. Maybe there's something I learned. I finally like my parents again. I'm gonna write for teens and parents. 
And so I started to write for teens and parents, started to do presentations at PTAs, started to do public speaking, had a blog for parents on communicating with your kids. And that was the start of writing and researching communication. That's amazing. So, oh man, everybody wants to dabble in passive income for (laughs) sure. It's getting harder and harder to dabble in. But you go to the seminar, you start doing these things. Did you abandon the idea of international studies? Did you just say- 100%. You just said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, 100%. I was like, I was like, I will maybe take this abroad one day. I will maybe write this in other languages. At the time, it was much harder to get translation. So I assumed that I would write this blog and then maybe translate it into Mandarin or Spanish or French. Um, I was I was doing international speaking at different PTAs. So I just figured I would use my language at some point, but I totally abandoned going to international business. Super interesting. So talk to me about the beginning of that because when you're dabbling in passive income, I imagine it's pretty hard to get the stream going in the beginning and you're spending a lot of time probably on YouTube and on Twitter. You know, actually it wasn't as hard as you would think. And the reason for this is because one, it was very new in the space. So no, there was no KDP, there was no Kindle Direct Publishing. So an ebook was like a what? Like what was that, an ebook? Like it was like that. So me coming out with an ebook was very unique, very different. I had no competition. I had to go through the whole manual process of creating a book and then printing it out with a printing press. And so actually the market was pretty open and no one was doing it in the parenting space because the only people that were in the parenting space were family psychologists and family counselors and they were handcuffed by their degree. Real quick, when you say these guys were handcuffed, what do you mean by that? Handcuffed how? So because a lot of the counselors couldn't write about their patients, they had to anonymize everything, they couldn't give advice online, they actually couldn't write articles on things that people desperately wanted to read about. I was just a regular old folk person writing communication tips for parents and teenagers, get, you know, give interviewing, giving one tip to the other. And so actually in the beginning, I, I think my very first product was an ebook. I think it was called Radically with an E, communicating with your teen. And oh, it was- Wow, radical. Yeah, yes. And it was, it was community and it was digital communication with teens. It was like, it was literally an ebook on like, what is the Facebook? It was literally the Facebook. What is the Facebook? What is Twitter? What is YouTube? And it was just a guide for parents and it killed because parents were desperate for that information and there was no psychologist who knew kids lingo to be able to do it. I remember my most popular series every Friday was- um, what different acronyms stood for in text, LOL, BRB. That was my most popular post every Friday. When we come back, Vanessa talks about what went wrong and what went right with building her fledgling business right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. 
Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to this very fun conversation with Vanessa Van Edwards of Science of People. When we left off, Vanessa was just beginning to write ebooks online for parents of teens. And even though things started well, it's never easy. And soon, Vanessa would have to begin her series of pivots. So at that point, we were in the wild west of search. And luckily, my husband now, I was dating him, and he's a total tech nerd, kind of self-taught programmer. And he was like, there's this thing called SEO. And I was like, SEO? And so he taught me about search. And I've always been a data person. Thank goodness, right? I've always liked formulas. So from the beginning, I was looking at what was already working. So I was writing posts for keywords from a very, very early stage. And that's when I was seeing what parents were actually searching. Social skills for kids, how to talk to my kid, what to say to my kid, don't understand my teenager. And so um, it was actually relatively easy to get in front of people. We didn't do paid advertising until 13 years into the business. Wow. Was this, was this called Science of People at the time? Mm-mm. It was called, oh my goodness, back then... Pivot, pivot, pivot. Okay. First website was onteenstoday.com. Guess what, Jay? A year into it, someone created a porn website called inteenstoday.com. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, no. yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> and people kept mistyping it. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nightmare. My very first business was going so well. Someone created a porn website with one letter different and people kept mistyping it. So I had to change my entire brand and my entire website. So yeah, it was on Teens Today and then it was Radical Parenting. Um, And it was Radical Parenting for a long time. And then fast forward to another big pivot. You might be wondering, why, Vanessa, are you not still doing parenting advice if it was going so well? So um, this is leading to my biggest business failure, which was... Business was going great. I was selling eBooks. Um, we were thinking about online courses, although it wasn't even called that at the time. I was doing speaking events. I was doing coaching and consulting, and I got approached by Penguin to do a book. Great dream come true. Got the book deal. Literally beyond my wildest dreams. Came out with the book, and no one bought it. Like literally, no one bought it. That wasn't captivating. I'm not even aware of this book. Right. Uh, good. Different book. <laughs> And that was circa 2011, 2012. Exactly, yeah. And so up to that point, when you were running uh, the newsletter for parents and teens, how big was your team? Was it just you? We had one part-time employee and then three interns because I took teenagers on to write. 
So we always had three teen interns on the team who were writing with me to make sure that I had my finger on the pulse of teenagers. They told me, you know, words that were coming up. So I would say technically four, but only one other paid person. And what was the model at this point? You know, you you mentioned you're dabbling in passive income and you're on YouTube. Were you getting ad revenue from YouTube? No, we actually didn't turn ad revenue on until 2018. So um, we had no ads on the website and no ads on YouTube. All of our income was ebook sales, speaking, and my one-on-one coaching with teens and parents. What was, if there was, was there any tension around, you know, you're, you're angling towards this life of passive income. Your mom says, don't be tied to your hours. And two of the biggest drivers, speaking, one-on-one coaching, tied to your time. How did you reconcile that? Because a lot of people in the midst of this are in that exact position. It drove me crazy. It drove me crazy. Um, and I was constantly trying to figure out more eBooks, more products. You know, I was always trying to get affiliate revenue by being an Amazon affiliate seller, right? Like recommending books. Um, I would haul books, my book and other people's books to the back of speaking events to sell books at events, to try to get passive in- even more passive income from events. Um, and so it plagued me. And I realized that that was another reason why that business was not sustainable is that people really just wanted coaching in that business. It was just parents and teens wanting coaching. It was going to be incredibly hard to make money selling books or eBooks. And in 2011, it was really early days for online courses. Now I probably would have done an online course, but at the time it didn't really feel like an option. And what did your time and, you know, emotional energy feel like? Because I imagine if you're torn between making content, coaching, speaking, that's just a lot of demand on your time. Were you just working all the time? I was hustling, um, but I like the hustle. So I love building a business. Like that's something that I really like. So yes, I was very busy, but it felt like, you know, I was rolling my sleeves up every day and hustling. Also, we were seeing growth. So that was encouraging. But the point that was the hardest was when We had growth, 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 and then this book came out, and then nothing. And that was an entire passive income stream that I was working towards that was just gone. Like, my entire goal was the book was going to replace all of it. When you say growth, are you talking revenue growth or, like, subscriber growth or both? Revenue growth, yeah, all of it. I was able to charge, I was able to keep raising my rates. We had traffic growth. My email list was growing. My YouTube views were growing. Um, One of my videos hit a million back then, which was just monstrous at the time. Um, So I was expecting, and I was also hopeful, the book was coming. The book was going to fix everything. The book was going to replace all my coaching and speaking and get me book sales and course sales and more ebook sales. So there was a lot of hope. I didn't think that I was um, not going to be able to figure it out. I thought the book was the final piece of the puzzle. 2011, this book came out and I had an email list at that time, which by the way, in 2011, that was like great to have an email list. I think I had an email list of like 5,700 people. And I remember that really specifically because we figured there is 5,700 book sales, mm. right? Plus my mom, there's another thousand plus, you know what I mean? Like we'd done all the math and it turns out that people don't buy books unless you really force them to buy the book. And that really shocked me. I, I've been writing at that point for, I can't even do math four years, four or five years, I've been writing a free newsletter for people for five years. And this was the first time I was asking them to buy a book and they didn't buy it. And that wasn't their fault. That was my fault. Um, It was poorly titled. It was not marketed right. And here's the most important thing. I wrote the book 
like I thought I should write the book. I mentioned that the only other people in my space were other psychologists and family counselors. I am not that, not even close to that. But I wrote the book like they write books. And it didn't sound like me. It didn't sound like my blog. It had different voice in my blog. And so people didn't, not only read the, the first chapter on Kindle, we gave away the first chapter, you know, as like, a, buy the book, here's the first chapter. People read it and they were like, who is this person? Because it didn't sound like me. I want to double click on something real quick because you mentioned, you know, this was a publishing deal, dream come true. I think a lot of people equate publishing deal with any publisher to be like, all right, that's the fail safe. That means it's going to sell. <laughs> yes, yes, the answer is that is exactly what I thought. I thought my life would literally change the moment, the day, the day it published. And not only did my life not change, it actually made me doubt everything that I was doing. I was also at that point really far away from my teen years, right? I was 25 at the time. And so it felt kind of inauthentic to be writing about teenagers when I wasn't that close to it. I wasn't living at home anymore. And so it made me look really hard at my business. And I realized I was unhappy because I was writing about something that I didn't care about anymore. I wasn't a teenager. I was not yet a parent. I am now a parent. And I went, this is not really what I want to do. And so my husband said, you know, what, what have you liked writing about? Like, what, 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 what do you just want to write about if it was just writing for you? I said, my biggest headache is I don't want to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't want to pretend to be a therapist. I don't want to pretend to be a counselor. I don't want to pretend to be a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a therapist. I want to be a human being writing helpful tips for other human beings like a friend. That's what I want. That's way less pressure. It's more authentic. It's more me. He said, great. Because at that point, I was also considering, do I go back and get my master's? Do I go back and get a PhD? And I realized I did not want to do that. I didn't want to write that way. And so I had already owned the domain sciencepeople.com, which was like my secret kind of like, ooh, that would be so fun to write about the science of people, not parents, not teens, just people. He was like, do it. And so that's what I started to do. And so in 2011, Science of People was born. Vanessa took everything she'd learned so far through On Teens Today, Radical Parenting, and a failed book launch to propel her new business further than ever before. And here's the thing. I doubt anyone listening to this was very familiar with her previous businesses or that first book, but that's exactly why I wanted to spend so much time talking about it. Vanessa spent somewhere around five or six years of her life building that business. That laid the groundwork and taught her everything that she brought into Science of People and her latest book, Captivate. So when you're feeling discouraged in the early days of your creative work, think about those five or six years that Vanessa spent on the foundational work that you probably weren't even aware of. Okay, now let's hear how Vanessa took those lessons and applied them. And so that's when I started to write on Science of People. I asked my email list, my, my radical parenting email list. I said, hey, I'm going to start to broaden to just general communication tips um, over here on Science of People. If you want to come with me, click this link. If you don't, Sayonara. Farewell. Um, and I think about 3,000 people came over, which uh, I think out of, you know, out of like 6,000, um, that was pretty good. And I think some of those people are actually still on my list, which is incredible. Uh, they're like almost grandparents now. No, not really. Um, but they have <laughs> older kids. And I just started to write. Now, I was going into Science of People with a really great knowledge base. 
I had played and experimented in this other business. And so I knew exactly what I had to do to get passive income. One, no coaching, no coaching. So I, I did not offer coaching. And that was great because it got me out of that prison because it can be a prison. And it was like product, 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 search and product. And that's what I did every day. That's what I do every day, all day. Writing for search, writing email funnels directed towards really good products and writing products. And that, thank goodness for that knowledge, because that is exactly how our revenue is broken up now. What have been, since that time, since you've been doing Science of People, what stand out to you as some pivotal or uh, milestone moments in building that business now? Leveraging other platforms has been a really... Um, important piece of our business growth. So search is a foundation. So I I barely even want to touch on that because it's so important that it's the foundation. Yes, you need to make sure that everything you do is optimized for what people actually want, which is what are they searching for? That's the foundation. The second thing is leveraging other people's platforms and pivoting for them. So very early on, my husband, so grateful for him, he said, hey, there's this course platform called Udemy you know, they do like a lot of software courses and accounting courses and spreadsheet courses, but I bet you they would love a body language course. I was like, okay. And so I'm looking at Udemy and I'm looking at their audience and their audience is at that time was very technical, a lot of engineers. And so I thought I'm going to do a business body language course for these folks. A little pivot for me. That was not what I was writing about originally. So like I pivoted into, okay, what would the perfect course for Udemy be? And I took my iPhone and I filmed a course on my iPhone in my kitchen with all my lamps in my apartment. I dragged them over to the kitchen. I didn't have professional lights. I didn't even have a professional microphone. I was using my phone. And it's probably like an iPhone 5? At the most. <laughs> At the most. Film this course. I'm like, if I can get... 30 sales, I will be so excited. And I think at the, at the time it was priced at $49. I was like, if I can get 30 sales, I will just be thrilled. So I put the course up and it took, I think, 12 to 24 hours for the course to get approved by Udemy. I put the course up, I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning and I will never forget my inbox was filled with sales. Like for as far as the eye could see with sales. We have... 278,000 students on Udemy right now. That's incredible. It's incredible. I can't even believe it. I'm like, what is crazy? Does Udemy allow you to contact those students directly? No, no, not really. Um, They have like 15 firewalls between you and your students, which I get. They're protecting students from being pitched and pitched and pitched. I can message them educational announcements. So I I oftentimes once a month, twice a month, I send them educational announcements of posts I've written. So if somebody is listening to this and like, I want to dabble in passive income. I want to build something like this. The landscape has obviously changed. YouTube is less open. Where would you, based on what you know, say, here's where I would focus my energy right now? You're absolutely right. It has changed, but it's still very doable. Um, I have weird advice on this, which is you need to create content for a platform that can pitch your content for you. And the reason for that is because starting from scratch getting an email list, getting search rankings, creating videos, getting ranking in YouTube, then trying to create an email funnel, then to sell them is a lot of steps. You can do that. You can absolutely do that. There's room for that. 
A better choice is to know your content so incredibly well that you have a very unique and helpful perspective on it, that you can go to platforms like Udemy or Creative Live or Skillshare or LinkedIn Learning or a platform like that or Masterclass, and you can say to them, I am the number one expert on this thing. I would like to create the perfect piece of content for you. Will you help me get it out there? Then on the back end, you have your email list, articles waiting for them, a funnel waiting for them, maybe a book waiting for them. But in this day and age, if you want faster, a faster um, way to do that is to actually leverage other people's platforms. Man, I wish I could have talked with Vanessa for another hour. This is one of the easiest interviews that I've had to edit because she's such a great conversationalist. And don't forget, she's a recovering awkward person. So if you find yourself wishing that you could connect with people as well as Vanessa does, the good news is that you can. I am so inspired by stories like this. I relate so much to the early years of radical parenting and hearing how Vanessa was able to pivot until she really found her niche and her audience makes me more confident that I can do the same. If you want to learn more about Vanessa, check out scienceofpeople.com or Vanessa's YouTube channel. I have links to both in the show notes, as well as a link to her book, Captivate, which again, I could not recommend more highly. Thanks to Vanessa for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Brian Steele for mixing the show and creating our theme music. If you like this episode, find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.